The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. Remembered to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast with no advertising. You can support Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, and new EP, Robert. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV, a Leslie Stevens retrospective, part two. When we last left Leslie Stevens' TV career, he was working on creating and developing series for Universal Television, such as It Takes a Thief. The Name of the Game, and McLeod, as well as TV movies that were potential series pilots, such as 1970's The Aquarians with Ricardo Montalban, Jose Ferrer, and Leslie Nielsen, with an abundance of underwater sequences filmed by the legendary Riku Browning. This NBC TV movie revolved around a hydrospace team of scientists in a nuclear-powered deep-sea lab in the Atlantic who respond to an ocean ecological disaster off the coast of an African country. The explorers must then find the villain who has stolen the world's supply of nerve gas and hidden it somewhere in the ocean depths. Stevens is one of the credited writers of the film, which featured unsubtle ecological sermons delivered by Montalban's Dr. Delgado character, and incorporated several elements similar to NBC's later Man from Atlantis, including that of an underwater base, a high-tech sub, and the concept of a gill-like valve implant that would make underwater breathing possible by humans modified with such biotechnology. The film was produced in Miami, Florida and the Bahamas by Ivan Torres, known for his TV series Daktari, Sea Hunt, and Flipper, as well as the now nearly forgotten Salty. The Aquarians, which had the original working title of Deep Lab, was occasionally rerun throughout the 70s up to around 1985 in TV syndication 
but doesn't seem to have been aired in decades. The film is now largely forgotten, and in the U.S. is only available on bootleg home video. Steven's TV movie, I Love a Mystery, which he both wrote and directed, aired on NBC in 1973 and spoofed the private detective genre with a trio of characters played by David Hartman, Hagen Beggs, and Les Crane. Ida Lupino, Don Knotts, and Jack Weston were also brought in to round out the cast. The story was actually an adaptation of the 1940s radio show of the same name, created by Carlton E. Morse. The makers of Fleischmann's Fresh Yeast present I Love a Mystery. For an incredible 13 years, the trio of Jack, Doc, and Reggie pursued mad scientists, saboteurs, spies, and assorted evildoers five nights a week heard in America's living rooms. When Universal decided to resurrect the concept, Senior VP Frank Price sought and received Morse's blessing for the TV movie. Stevens combined elements of two stories from the radio serials. The disappearance of Alexander Archer from The Fear That Creeps Like a Cat and the three sisters' daughters, Faith, Hope, and Charity from The Thing That Cried in the Night. If you look it up on YouTube as I did, you might be immediately struck with the anachronistic look and presentation of this 1973 movie. That's because it was filmed in 1966, following the completion of Incubus, and was shelved for seven years before NBC dusted it off and presented it as a Tuesday night world premiere. The likely reason why was revealed when it was raked over the coals by TV critics such as Jim Meyer, calling it possibly the worst movie yet made for TV, and suggesting that producer Frank Price and Leslie Stevens be lined up against the wall and pelted with rotten tomatoes. However, one concept Stevens created and wrote for Universal and NBC that aired as a TV movie in February 1972 was so well received, it was greenlit for a series for the following fall. Probe revolved around a high-tech private industry spy detective organization called World Securities that operated field agents around the world. The agents, or probes as they were called, were continually monitored from a command center called Probe Control. Probe, the concept for which seemed like something right out of the Steersman Handbook, would merge the James Bond spy genre with what Stevens called the electronic environment of the present day. But what got depicted on Probe would stretch what then modern day technology was capable of, as Stevens told the press. We're applying methods used with astronauts to Earth-bound agents. If these devices can measure blood pressure and heartbeats and provide information more than 200,000 miles to the moon, they should be able to do the same across 3,000 miles of Earth. Since probe agents didn't work for the government, but for the private sector company World Securities Corporation that charged clients for their services, the agents were thus private citizens with no law enforcement powers. World Securities operated agents worldwide and seemed to take work for very well-off clients, other corporations, or the political elite. 
Well-paid agents, or probes as they were called in the movie, were outfitted with a variety of high-tech hardware, including a scanner that could be worn as a ring, tie-tack, or necklace, which was a miniature TV camera, among other things. An ear implant so a team of specialists at probe control could speak to the agent, as well as a dental implant where the agent could silently relay brief messages and secretly answer probe control questions with a yes or no. Probe control thus could have a continual video image from their agent in the field in real time, provided they had a functional scanner. Specialists could also obtain medical telemetry and various types of sensor readings from the scanners and relay these readings back to the agent over the earpiece. Burgess Meredith was cast as VCR Cameron, the person in charge at Probe Control, or at least the portion of it the viewer always saw. Hugh O'Brien was cast in the lead role. O'Brien described his character to the press. He's not just another cop. He's a kind of ultra-James Bond, if that's not redundant. But he's no Superman. What he does is not for mother and country, but for bread and broads. Production on the Probe TV movie pilot began in November 1971 and aired February 21, 1972. The plot revolved around a $22 million set of diamonds, once plundered by Nazi Hermann Goering, that went missing following the Nuremberg trials. World Securities was hired by Johannes Consolidated Diamond Exchange to recover them. Probe agent Hugh Lockwood, on break following a recent mission, was lured out of his vacation with a bonus and given the assignment. The film was directed by the venerable Russ Mayberry, who had worked with Stevens previously on The Virginian and McLeod. The two-hour presentation had exceptional production values for a TV movie with a command center probe control set, which seemed to combine elements of Star Trek's Enterprise Bridge and NASA's Mission Control, costing a reported $100,000. The movie featured a James Bond-style pre-credit sequence, and even the plot may have been influenced by the prior years, Diamonds Are Forever. There was even sexually suggestive banter, or at least as much as 1972 broadcast television allowed, between Lockwood and medical telemetry specialist Harding, portrayed by Angel Tompkins, which played similar to a Bond-Moneypenny dynamic. Probe performed well enough against CBS's comedy and variety lineup of Here's Lucy, Doris Day, and Sonny and Cher, as well as ABC's airing of the 1968 film A Lovely Way to Die, that NBC placed it on their tentative schedule for the 1972 fall season. Although with the amount of money invested in the pilot film, you can't help but think it was always intended as a series. By the time of the May network upfronts, Probe was officially announced as a fall series that would air on Wednesdays against the new Julie Andrews Hour on ABC and CBS's returning hit, Canon, going into its second season. Probe would follow the NBC Wednesday mystery movie, a wheel show rotating Banachek, Madigan, and Cool Million, and would replace Rod Serling's Night Gallery, which previously held the time slot. TV columnist Clarence Peterson thus quipped, NBC hopes that viewers will not be sated with mysteries after the 90-minute show preceding, and that the space-age gimmick and lots of sexy girls will keep them from switching to canon on CBS. 
Following the rotating lead actor concept already in use on Stevens' The Name of the Game, per NBC's request, the new series would follow three different agents that would be featured in their own episodes. At a press junket for the new series, actors Hugh O'Brien, joined by series regulars Tony Franciosa, Doug McClure, Burgess Meredith, and Angel Tompkins, mingled and gave interviews to reporters and TV critics, who were later even entertained on the probe control set, with cocktails and hors d'oeuvres served by attractive females dressed in sexy sailor outfits. The actors seemed to have a lot of fun at the press event. Hugh O'Brien handed out business cards to the press that read, I am a probe, so please excuse my hands. Angel Tompkins quipped that O'Brien sent her a package of them as her Christmas gift for that year, as well as alluded to the fact that she and O'Brien performed extensive rehearsals of their kissing scenes in his trailer. O'Brien, however, when asked about Tompkins, would respond, I do not get involved with actresses. I would enjoy dinner with her, but when I get home, I don't want to talk shop. TV veteran Francioso, when asked why he accepted his new role in the series, gave the simple answer, One specific reason, M-O-N-E-Y. NBC began to promote their new Wednesday night lineup in the fall promos. Wednesday night of NBC Week has it all with Adam 12. Hard-hitting police action. The all-new NBC Wednesday mystery movie, three shows in one, with George Papard as Banachek, a step ahead of the game insurance investigator. Richard Widmark in his television series debut as Madigan, the made-to-order role he created in the movies. And James Farantino as a debonair troubleshooter who gets a cool million for his troubles. Then, Search, with Hugh O'Brien, Tony Franciosa, and Doug McClure, three space-age daredevils wired for anything. The pilot movie was rerun August 4th, but was now retitled Search. A behind-the-scenes dispute over the title of the series had taken place over the previous title, Probe, which will be revealed in the upcoming behind-the-scenes segment. Series episodes began airing September 13th. By the first week of November, NBC picked up Search for the entire season. Let's take a look at each of the probe agents and the missions they went on. Hugh O'Brien played Hugh Lockwood, Probe Agent 1, an ex-astronaut selected in the first group to ride the command module on Gemini 3. Lockwood had the panache of a TV Bond, a man at the top of his game, always prepared, willing and capable, and with an ego to match. Lockwood always got his man, as well as his woman. Lockwood appeared on eight World Securities missions. Mission 1, The Murrow Disappearance When a high-ranking official in foreign affairs disappears, World Securities is hired to find him before various government agencies find out he's missing. This leads Lockwood to a crooked card game with higher stakes than meet the eye. On this mission, we get a closer look inside the belt kit carried by probe agents introduced in the pilot movie a buckle compartment containing lockpicks and various other tools that might be needed on a particular mission. French fashion model and actress Capucine guest stars. Mission 4, Moon Rock. 
Lockwood is assigned to retrieve a stolen moon rock full of diamonds, which involves a chase around the world to Asia Minor, and chartering a first-class trip on a 747 for him and the lady of the episode. Joanne Flug and Anne Prentice guest star. Mission 7, The Bullet. Lockwood is sent to help an Eastern Bloc scientist who invented a poison bullet defect to the West. When, of course, Lockwood is shot with one of the bullets, it's a race against time to find both the antidote and escape the country. Ina Ballin and Malachi Throne guest star. Mission 9, The Adonis File. When a top talk show host announces his candidacy for the Senate, his executive secretary is kidnapped and held for a $5 million ransom. World Securities is hired by a mysterious new foundation, and Lockwood is assigned to be their intermediary to the kidnappers. Bill Bixby and Deanna Lund guest star. Mission 10, Flight to Nowhere. Lockwood takes on a personal mission when a friend who runs an air cargo business disappears on a flight in the desert near Reno, Nevada. He quickly finds one party after another trying to kill him. Joanna Cameron and Linda Crystal guest star. And if you pay attention, you'll see a young Cheryl Stoppelmore at Probe Control, who later was known as Cheryl Ladd. Mission 11, The Gold Machine. Lockwood is assigned to investigate the location of a lost gold mine in Northern California. This is complicated first by losing his hearing in an explosion, then by Miss Harding, on vacation, showing up in the field to be his hearing ear kitten. Mark Leonard guest stars. This episode was condensed into a Viewmaster package, one of the few merchandising tie-ins that were released for the series. Mission 16, Countdown to Panic. A researcher and old friend of Lockwood's is infected with a deadly virus on a World Security's scientific deep-sea dive. When he escapes quarantine, Lockwood is assigned to find him before he causes an epidemic. But when his friend is killed in front of him, Lockwood finds there's more to the story than he's being told. Ed Nelson and Anne Francis guest star. This was the only mission featuring Lockwood with the new showrunners, which we'll explore in a bit. Like many episodes, scenes were shot on Columbia Ranch and multiple TV houses can be seen, including the ones used for Hazel, Father Knows Best, The Partridge Family, and I Dream of Jeannie. Mission 22, Suffer My Child. Lockwood is assigned to find the 21-year-old daughter of a wealthy, influential Wall Street tycoon after she inexplicably goes missing from the family estate right under the noses of their personal security. Mel Ferrer, Diane Hall, and Paul Manti guest star, and Cheryl Stoppelmore appears for the final time as Amy Love. In the opening credit role, actress Donna Bacala is mistakenly credited as Dabney Coleman, who also appears in the episode. This was the final mission for Hugh Lockwood, but was filmed earlier in the season. The production number may indicate it was the 11th one filmed, and probably would have aired November 29th, when it was preempted by the Billy Graham Crusade. Agent Nick Bianco, as played by Tony Franciosa, was designated Omega Probe, often tasked with organized crime capers. 
a razor-sharp, street-savvy ex-New York City cop who knows every gang, bookie, pool hustler, mobster, consigliere, cop, commissioner, FBI, and CIA agent. He is an encyclopedia of the underworld, extremely smooth with women, able to dazzle the lady dean of a wealthy girl's school, or even a Jackie Kennedy. Bianco also appeared on eight World Securities missions. Mission 2, one of our probes is missing. Nick Bianco is called in to find a missing, less efficient probe agent, which leads to the discovery of an international counterfeiting scheme. Stephanie Powers and Larry Linville guest star. The title is likely a reference to the 1942 film, One of Our Aircraft is Missing. The title of this film has been spoofed and referenced numerous times in popular entertainment and used in episode titles in everything from Rocky and Bullwinkle and Lost in Space to Star Trek The Animated Series and Land of the Lost. Mission 5. Live Men Tell Tales When a probe agent supposedly dies while scuba diving, Bianco investigates, taking him to Paris, the agent's mistress, and a mysterious new antagonist that wants to set up the equivalent of the evil version of probe control. Mission 6. Operation Iceman When an international hitman called the Iceman murders a probe agent, Bianco is teamed with three other probes, including his former mentor, to prevent the hitman from killing an American ambassador at the UN building. Edward Mulhair and Mary Fran guest star. Mission 12, Let Us Pray. Bianco is assigned to investigate the disappearance of a billionaire's fiancé, who just happens to be an old girlfriend. He finds it was a ruse to capture and transport him to an island in the Mediterranean, where he'll be hunted like an animal, without the aid of his probe control electronics. Guest stars Diana Hyland and Mike DeAnda, who appears in his final TV role. A few notes on this one. This was the first episode of 1973, and it's another adaptation of The Most Dangerous Game, a 1924 short story that's been used so many times in film and TV, it's a recognizable trope. At least 30 instances of this story theme being used on television have been logged from 1963 to the present day. We also see the antagonist remove the probe ear implant and modify it for his own use. The scene where this is shown features an insert shot of a hand holding the implant, but the original shot was obviously replaced. On the DVD, you see a rectangular gold-colored electronic device, while the original broadcast showed a commercially available button battery. Why and when this shot was replaced remains a mystery. Mission 14, The 24-Carat Hit Bianco heads out to help fellow agent Ed Bain on a case, an agent who finds his family attacked and daughter kidnapped over 1,200 pounds of missing gold from a robbery. Things are complicated when Bain refuses help and goes dark as he pursues the criminals himself. With a Netto tool in an early role and character actor Wally Cox in his final role, as he died three weeks after the airing of this episode. A new pro control set and personnel, a new haircut for VCR Cameron, and a new production style are among the network mandated changes under new showrunner Anthony Spinner. 
I calculated what 1,200 pounds of gold would be worth. In 1973, just after this episode aired, right around a million dollars. And at today's spot price, it's 25.2 million. Mission 17, the Clayton Lewis document. Bianco is contacted by the wife of an old friend, a presidential advisor being blackmailed into revealing classified information that could derail a disarmament conference. When taken off the case, surprise, he refuses and continues investigating. Don Gordon, Scream Queen Julie Adams, and the creepy Anthony James guest star. And we see a rare appearance of VCR Cameron outside of probe control. Mission 19, The Matson Papers. Bianco is assigned to locate a former basketball pro who is going to turn state's witness against organized crime in a Texas town, but went missing. Cameron Mitchell, Tim O'Connor, Terry Carter, and Nancy Wilson guest star. Excellent guest stars, and we get a bit of Nancy Wilson singing, but we've fallen far from the original concept, as this was the most run-of-the-mill episode yet as it plays much like any standard TV detective crime show of the era. Mission 21, Ends of the Earth. The widow of an embezzler implores Nick Bianco to investigate his apparent suicide. The investigation leads to a prominent travel agency that may be much more than it seems, as it's connected to a number of similar disappearances. Sebastian Cabot, Jay Robinson, and Diana Moldauer guest star. This was the final time director Ralph Sinensky worked with Diana Moldauer. Sinensky had previously directed her twice on Star Trek and directed Burgess Meredith on Printer's Devil, an episode of The Twilight Zone. C.R. Grover, played by Doug McClure, was envisioned as an unassigned standby probe agent attached to no particular unit. Ready for action, but only occasionally called upon, he became a beachcomber goofball. As Stevens put it in the show press release, As a probe, he is incredible. He is a tough, brilliant operator. The reason for his astounding capability is that he wants to get it over with so he can return to his life work of goofing off. Grover appeared on seven World Securities missions. Mission 3, Short Circuit. Probe control itself is at risk when a rogue scientist, one of the designers of probe control, threatens to use a device to destroy all their electronic equipment, and backup probe agent C.R. Grover is called upon to stop him. Marianne Mobley guest stars. This episode recycled scenes from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and therefore became one of the many TV episodes and films that featured the IBM AN FSQ-7 as a set piece, which I'll expand on in a bit. The MacGuffin in the episode performed essentially like an EMP device, which is undoubtedly what it would be called if the episode were produced today. Mission 8, In Search of Midas. Grover, teaming with a gossip columnist, is assigned to verify that a Howard Hughes-type recluse is still alive, who hasn't been seen for 18 months and in some kind of TV spy universe collision, Get Smart's Barbara Feldon guest stars. Here we learn that CR stands for Christopher Robin. 
this episode is structurally the oddest entry yet for the series. Perhaps in a preview of what was to come later in the season, the emphasis on Probe Control's continual monitoring of probe agents by multiple specialists and the constant switching back and forth between the agent in the field and Probe Control was greatly reduced. Mission 13, A Honeymoon to Kill When the madcap heiress of an Italian conglomerate is kidnapped on her honeymoon, Grover is assigned to find her, and he finds family members are out to kill the heiress to gain control of the family fortune. Italian actress Luciana Paluzzi guest stars, probably best known for playing a specter assassin in the Bond film Thunderball. This episode is of note since it's the last one produced by series creator Leslie Stevens and producer Robert Justman. Starting with the next episode, producer Anthony Spinner takes over the show. Mission 15, Numbered for Death Grover pulls World Securities into a case involving his brother-in-law, who is being blackmailed. He is partnered with female European probe agent Hauser and finds Swiss bank accounts have been compromised, which threatens to undermine the financial stability of the world's elite. Peter Mark Richmond, Laurie Peters, and Whit Bissell guest star. Both Richmond and Bissell had previously appeared on The Outer Limits. I was impressed at how much of the fight at the conclusion was actually McClure doing the rough and tumble. However, ratings-wise, this was the lowest point of the series, finishing number 58 for the weekly Nielsen ratings, with just 9.8 million people watching and only a 17% share of the audience. Mission 18, Goddess of Destruction The murder of an elderly Indian art collector and the theft of one of his art pieces triggers World Security's involvement in the matter. Grover comes to believe an ancient Indian cult called the Tugs was involved. When he travels to India to investigate, his suspicions are confirmed. But is Grover any match for a 600-year-old cult? And Jeanette Comer and Alfred Ryder guest star. And this features the second on-screen appearance of the occasionally heard Probe Control briefing voice, played by Vernon Weddell, who we see on screen at Probe Control. He was previously seen as a different character in the Murrow disappearance. This plot revolves around the mysterious thuggy cult of India, called the Tugs in this episode. As depicted in the episode, they did have an M.O. of strangulation, as they carried minimal weapons. Referenced in historical documents as early as the mid-14th century CE, they seemed to operate for an incredible 500 years until the cult was essentially wiped out by the British by the mid-19th century. The Thuggy have been featured numerous times in popular media, including the 1939 film Gunga Den, 1984's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and in the pages of Suicide Squad from DC Comics. And the English-language word thug indeed originates with the Hindi word, which means swindler or deceiver. A production note, the exterior that was used for Gotham City Hall on Batman was seen in this episode, including those front steps which Batman and Robin ran up in nearly every Batman episode. Mission 20, Moment of Madness. VCR Cameron is kidnapped by a former soldier he commanded during the Korean War. The replacement mission director calls in Grover to find Cameron, 
who is being driven to his psychological breaking point. Patrick O'Neill, Brooke Bundy, and James Sicking guest star. An interesting bit of dialogue, when being interrogated, Cameron repeats, My name is V.C. Cameron, which seems to contradict the idea that his first name is John and that V.C.R. was his title, as indicated on his prop badge. Mission 23, The Packagers A third-world revolutionary disappears from exile in France. Grover poses as a journalist, and the investigation leads to a retired brigadier general that engineers revolutions in various countries. Actress Xenia Gratzos, later known as Brioni Farrell, and Michael Pataki guest star. This final episode was filmed earlier in the season, likely the 15th episode produced, and would have aired January 17th when search was preempted for the special Cole Porter in Paris. And I swear, I hear a riff of the Mission Impossible theme in the middle of this episode. Search finished number 61 out of 75 shows with a 14.1 share of the audience in the Nielsen ratings for the 1972-73 TV season. Behind the Scenes Search was a Leslie Stevens production in association with Warner Brothers Television. Search was filmed on stages 12 and 18 at Warner Brothers Burbank Studios and made extensive use of the Warner backlot, now known as Columbia Ranch, for all those location shots that took place all over the world. The World Securities Building used in the series was in reality the L.A. County Superior Court Building on the corner of South Commonwealth Avenue and 6th Street in L.A., People behind the scenes on Search that had previously worked on Stevens' prior series, The Outer Limits, included producer Robert Justman, makeup artist Fred Phillips, and music artist Dominic Frontier, who composed the series' light, jazzy theme. John Strong, a longtime associate of Leslie Stevens, was associate producer and assistant director on the series, and by his own account, had worked with Stevens on series as far back as Stoney Burke, and the Outer Limits. The Probe and Search logo and main title sequences were also designed by Mr. Strong, including the concept and photography of the diamond visual motif, reflecting the plot of the pilot film. The diamonds were provided by none other than jeweler Harry Winston, the legendary King of Diamonds. The dual world map search logo was in fact intentionally modeled after the logo he designed for the Earthside Missile Base Ecology Center in an effort to keep the spirit of the now-failed project alive. Earthside was discussed in the last podcast. The font selected may look familiar to anyone that remembers the 1970s, as it bears a very strong resemblance to Westminster, a printing and display typeface inspired by the MICR routing and account numbers printed at the bottom of checks to this day. MICR stands for Magnetic Ink Character Recognition, and the characters used are designed to have exaggerated, distinct features, recognizable by a magnetic reader. The Westminster font was created by designer Leo Mags in the mid-1960s, when he was asked to design a futuristic typeface for the title of a magazine article. Once he created the needed letters, he completed work on the rest of the alphabet in his spare time. He submitted his new typeface to London's Photoscript Limited 
who paid him a royalty for its usage. The font style took off in 1968 when the film Sebastian used it for its title design, and its use exploded on TV, films, books, and advertising. It has since inspired a number of imitators. Mr. Strong created his own variation on the font for the search title and opening credits, as many of the letters bear distinct differences from Westminster. Mr. Strong was also an actor, appearing in TV commercials of the 1960s, and was the Kellogg's Sugar Pops Cowboy in their whippersnapper ads of the early 1970s, a commercial series directed by none other than Probe and Search director Russ Mayberry. Mayberry had also worked with Strong and Stevens on McLeod. John Strong also had his own local talk show on L.A. television in 1971, filmed at and airing on KTTV, the same station where The Outer Limits filmed. The show was also seen in TV markets in Arizona and New Mexico, where KTTV was carried by local cable. Mr. Strong is also a writer, credited with episodes of Scooby-Doo, Return to the Planet of the Apes, the all-new Super Friends Hour, as well as Love American Style, All in the Family, and an episode of Search. Cast member Angel Tompkins recalls this funny story that gives us a little glimpse of the irreverent nature of producer John Strong and what it may have been like on the set of Search. During the pilot presentation to the network, John Christopher Strong edited into the title shots a huge penis take off like a missile to Mars with the title Probe right behind it, and fear and laughter was heard in the network screening room as a joke. I told the story to the NBC press when they had their big junket for all their new series without blinking an eye, because I thought it was funny and innocent. And Tony Franciosa was with me because he was being introduced or added to the show of contract players, and he was embarrassed or speechless. The press, of course, could only hint at this humorous anecdote in their articles. And this spliced-in sight gag, as related to me by Mr. Strong, was far more pornographic than Angel Tompkins described, and certainly cannot be related here. Directors on search included the aforementioned Russ Mayberry, who helmed the pilot movie and five episodes. William Wired, who did four, and Alan Reisner and Jerry Jameson, each doing two. Mayberry was an extremely prolific TV director who worked on some 80 series over his career. Wired was known for The Doris Day Show, Daniel Boone, and The Rockford Files. Other notable names included directors Ralph Sinensky, Joseph Pevney, and Mark Daniels, all prolific Star Trek directors. Writers S.S. Schweitzer, Judy Burns, Irv Perlberg, Jack Turley, Don Ballack and Robert C. Dennis all contributed to the series, all names commonly seen in television writing credits of this era. The overall look of the show was the result of the work of Emmy Award-winning production designer Fred Hartman, who had worked on film on Around the World in 80 Days and Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Following Search, he would work on Doc Savage, The Man of Bronze, Damien, Omen 2, and The Spirit 1987 TV movie. The original design for the probe control set, sitting illuminated in a sea of darkness, is said by John Strong to reflect the concept that the viewer was seeing only one out of many probe controls overseeing multiple agents in the field at once. 
Hartman's work on search led to his being selected to design the set for WNBC's News Center 4, a set design copied by the Today Show and NBC Nightly News. Computers on set were provided by Control Data Corporation. The clever design of the probe control set, with various video monitors and consoles in front of the actors, allowed Burgess Meredith to read his lines from teleprompters hidden from the camera behind the computer console. As mentioned in the episode rundown, the famous IBM AN-FSQ-7 was used in at least three episodes, Short Circuit, Let Us Pray, and The Packagers. The Q-7 was a 1950s-era computerized command and control system for Cold War ground-controlled interception used in the U.S. Air Force Semi-Automatic Ground Environment Air Defense Network. The futuristic-looking components of the Q-7 have shown up on The Time Tunnel, Battlestar Galactica, Man from Atlantis, Westworld, War Games, Sliders, and well over 80 films and TV shows. A lover of abbreviations and acronyms, Stevens came up with the concept of PROBE being an acronym, the first three letters of which stood for Programmed Retrieval Operations. It was never formulated what B and E stood for, although fans have come up with their own ideas over the years. In the original Warner Guide for Show Writers, Leslie Stevens would advise potential writers, The show is intended as entertainment. It is designed as an exciting, enjoyable hour of escape from the cares of the day. It is not a message show, but that doesn't mean that the pendulum automatically swings to an empty vacuum. Real entertainment requires real showmanship and demands genuine creativity to blend the exciting ingredients, wit, invention, romance, glamour, that which pleases intelligent audiences. When it came to casting, the square-jawed six-foot-one Hugh O'Brien was the epitome of the term leading man. In the early 1950s, the ex-Marine was in a slew of theatrical westerns, so it was no surprise when he was cast in the lead role of 1955's The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp, the role for which he was best known. The top-rated series, which ran six seasons and an incredible 226 episodes, earned him worldwide fame and the means to travel the world. He spent nine days in the Central African country of Gabon with Nobel Peace Prize winner Dr. Albert Schweitzer, who asked him the soul-searching question, What are you going to do with all of this? In 1958, he founded Hugh O'Brien Youth Leadership, or HOBY, a youth leadership development program for high school scholars. Over 500,000 students have attended Hobie programs, including actors James Vanderbeek, Raviv Ullman, and Shannon Elizabeth. Following Wyatt Earp, the actor turned down some 70 firm TV series offers, choosing instead to simply appear as a guest star for the next decade. It wasn't until the TV movie Probe came along that he became open to the possibility of another series role. If they want me in a weekly series, I'd do it. But if it works out the other way, well, I've been out of weekly television by choice, and I could stay away indefinitely. An ownership stake in the series, as well as only having to produce eight episodes a season, seemed to seal the deal. Speaking of the probe set, he remarked, 
It is without a doubt the most fantastic movie set I've ever seen. A product of the imaginative brain of Leslie Stevens. O'Brien also had a connection to Stevens dating back to 1957. Being the lead actor on the first script, Stevens sold to Playhouse 90, Invitation to a Gunfighter. Anthony Franciosa was used to the rotating lead actor concept, as he had appeared on 17 episodes of the Leslie Stevens produced The Name of the Game. On the set of that series, Francioso continued his reputation of being hot-tempered and difficult to work with. His temperament was already an issue in his personal life. In 1957, he was arrested for punching a photographer. On the set of the 1966 film A Man Could Get Killed, James Garner punched Francioso in retaliation for his alleged abuse of stuntmen on the film. On the set of Name of the Game, it was reported he tended to micromanage the props, lighting, and camera angles, as well as being late on set, something Stevens even admitted. Tony likes to be able to change the script. He likes to come in a half hour late. He comes in knowing the lines but not feeling it right. He is dedicated to the Tony Franciosa performance. It is to his credit, but the physical drain leads to psychosomatic complaints. However, Stevens didn't bear the brunt of Franciosa's antics on that show as he had moved on to producing McLeod and The Virginian by the time things escalated on the name of the game set. Franciosa later got into a shouting match with producer Norman Lloyd and allegedly punched his director Barry Shear, triggering his termination. Thus, many were amazed at his casting on Search and rehiring by Universal Television. However, Stevens wasn't worried, telling the press, I never had any hassles with Tony on Name of the Game. I left before all the problems with Universal started. Indeed, I didn't find any accounts of misbehavior on the set of Search. And the Nick Bianco character, who was quick to solve problems with a punch to the face, was a great fit for the actor. And it's no surprise, as John Strong confirmed, the role was specifically written with Franciosa in mind. Following Search, however, Franciosa's problematic behavior didn't end. On his later series, Matt Helm, his antics drove producers to write him out of the final episode, as well as make his title credit smaller and place it right over his face in the opening credits. Wow. Doug McClure was lured to search at the tail end of his long-running Universal contract. McClure had just missed out on his latest pilot movie, The Judge and Jake Weiler, going to series. Search would be McClure's fourth TV series, having previously been on Overland Trail, Checkmate, and The Virginian. At 37, he would be the youngest of the probe agents, but he wasn't exactly a kid anymore, something he acknowledged to the press. I'm 37 years old. I don't want to hide that. It's neat. I dig every gray hair. McClure had previously worked with Leslie Stevens on It Takes a Thief and McLeod. His next series was the short-lived Barbary Coast in 1975, co-starring William Shatner. He appeared in a series of low-budget sci-fi movies in the 70s, At the Earth's Core, The Land That Time Forgot, and The People That Time Forgot. The following decade, he appeared in forgotten TV favorites, Manimal, Auto Man, and Out of This World. 
When the character of Troy McClure was introduced on The Simpsons in 1991, Doug asked his daughter, Are they making fun of me? Indeed, The Simpsons character had been based on actors Troy Donahue and Doug McClure. Simpsons producer Mike Rice revealed on a 2002 DVD commentary that he later had the opportunity to speak to McClure's daughter, who related that her father found the homage humorous, and the kids took to calling him Troy McClure around the house. Burgess Meredith, if you'll recall from the last installment, had met Stevens as a boy during that stint with Orson Welles' Mercury Theater. Since that time, Meredith had appeared on iconic episodes of The Twilight Zone and became known as the Penguin on the Batman series. I was able to find this period clip of Meredith speaking about his new role. You're going to be in this new series now on NBC called Search. Search. And what are you doing in this? Well, I am uh, uh, kind of what they call search control or probe control, uh, which is very similar to what happens in Houston with the astronauts and I sit uh, in a control office the same as Houston does with us and um, I have a space age detectives out Tony Francioso and Hugh O'Brien and Doug McClure amongst them and a couple of beautiful ladies and uh, I send them out and I'm always in touch with them by means of uh, miniaturized circuitry and telemetry and I have implants in their heads that I can talk to them, and they have dental contacts where they can send me signal, and they have uh, little miniaturized uh, television uh, necktie pins and rings and so forth, and I'm always uh, giving them the data very much as, we'll say, uh, allegedly Houston does to the boys up there. You're approaching such and such, uh, you're uh, endangered on your right, and so on. And it's an effort to get a, a, a series by which uh, crime and uh, people uh, who do crime are detected and found out by electronic devices. Is it pretty much within the realm of possibility? Well, I suppose it is. I, it scares me because uh, although in our program it's used on the side of good, one wonders what would happen if it's used on the side of evil. Known as Buzz on the set, AP John Strong revealed that Buzz, a wine enthusiast, was plied to do the show, at least in part, with a bribe of 13 bottles of 1941 Chateau Lafitte that Strong handed over to him, one per episode, until all 13 had been paid. During salary negotiations, Meredith's agent managed to score a lucrative $75,000 an episode for what worked out to be one filming day a week for most search episodes the amount the producers had intended to pay him for the entire season. Meredith thus ended up making out quite well during his stint on Search. Still, it seems he wasn't that impressed with the show after the season had begun. I suppose I began the series with a kind of humor at the outrageousness of the high camp in the show. I try to play it broadly and with some humor. Certainly, there's not much of social implication in this series. Angel Tompkins was medical telemetry specialist Gloria Harding. Tompkins was a model, as well as a TV and film actress, being one of the last contract players for Universal. Right before Probe premiered, she appeared in the February 1972 issue of Playboy magazine. Other Probe control specialists included 
Albert Popwell as Language Translation Specialist Griffin, Byron Chung as Technician Kuroda, Ginny Golden as Data Specialist Miss Keach, Pamela Jones as Miss James, Ron Castro as Carlos, Tom Halleck as Mr. Harris, Tony DaCosta as Mr. Ramos, Amy Farrell as Telemetry Technical Specialist Miss Murdoch, Cheryl Stoppelmore Ladd as Miss Love, A. Martinez as Mr. Lobos, Deanna Lund as Medical Specialist Linda Hart, Mary Fran as Medical Specialist Miss Burnside, Ann Prentice as Medical Specialist Ann Mulligan, and David Gilliam as Medical Specialist Arthur Burrell. During production of the series, I found two stunt-related injuries that were reported, the first taking place on the very first episode with Hugh O'Brien, who injured his knee. Following series filming, he had an operation to repair it and spoke to the press regarding the issue in a 1973 interview. I heard it on the first search show of the season. I did a stunt I've done a hundred times before, but this time I landed wrong. I went through the whole season on it, and I could manage, but I couldn't ski or play tennis on my leg, and I didn't want to face a life without those two sports. So I had the operation. Tony Franciosa also broke his shoulder in a stunt for director Barry Shear on episode The 24 Carat Hit. AP John Strong just about flipped when this took place, as he related, yelling at the director, Barry, what the f*** are you doing? Barry said he didn't want a stuntman to do it. He wanted the audience to see his face. The rotating actor production schedule gave him time to recover before having to film again. One of the most interesting stories behind Search happened before the series began, between airing of the pilot movie and the debut of series episodes in the fall. As mentioned, the Search series was intended to carry the same title as its pilot movie, Probe. For years, it has been repeated online that the title change was due to a PBS show having the same title, thus prompting a need to change it. This generic explanation started appearing on websites as early as 2008, when this detail was edited into the Wikipedia entry for the series. Even earlier discussions on the title change took place on the old Probe Control fan website message boards, with Angel Tompkins recalling, There was a local show back east that was already titled Probe, and the guy threatened to sue if the series was aired under that title, but with no reference to PBS. This seemed supported by newspaper columnist Norma Lee Browning in 1972 that commented, It was discovered a local news commentator somewhere had a program called Probe. I extensively searched for what show this was and came up empty until coming across this tidbit from TV critic James Dussard in a 1972 column. Usually, when a fall television series undergoes a name change before it gets on the air, the show is in trouble. It often means somebody is fiddling with the concept almost till airtime. Such does not seem so in the late-hour change of title for Hugh O'Brien's return to network television. The pilot movie and all advanced promotional material bore the title Probe, which was an investigative organization whose operatives have 1984-ish electronic and telemetric devices at their call. Suddenly, the title was dropped in favor of Search. Why? 
Because Dr. Albert E. Burke didn't care a bit for it, that's why. He didn't care for O'Brien and Company using it because that is the title which the good doctor offers both many documentaries lasting about three minutes and half-hour discussions on world affairs on a syndicated basis. Now, armed with a name to go along with the show title, I spent several days in a rabbit hole of research, the full results of which I'll present on a supplemental podcast. Dr. Albert E. Burke was a highly regarded Yale academic and expert on earth sciences and international affairs. He was a compelling, in-demand public speaker for decades, as well as a presidential advisor. If I may, his physical presence reminds me of Michael Rennie from The Day the Earth Stood Still. He hosted multiple television shows on both local New Haven, Connecticut television stations as well as on ETRC-affiliated stations, a forerunner of today's PBS. In late 1962, on the heels of the release of his book, Enough Good Men, A Way of Thinking, a new series was launched. Albert Burke. Probe was filmed at NBC's New York studios and syndicated nationwide. Within two years, Probe was seen on 67 local stations nationwide, including notably Pittsburgh's WQED. Dr. Burke used his expertise from his extensive travels and studies to speak on political, social, and environmental issues of the day, content extremely prescient for the time. Extensive searches of newspaper listings across the country show Probe was his longest-running series, running for nearly 10 years, up to early 1972. Enter Leslie Stevens' TV movie Probe, now going to series that year. As mentioned by James Dussard and confirmed by his daughter Helen, Dr. Burke specifically objected to this title being used since the title had been associated with him and his show for the past decade. His objection also likely carried weight due to his prior relationship with NBC as their educational television consultant. Thus, the title for Stephen's series was changed, as we've seen. Although this was not the case in every TV market, many of the stations that ran Dr. Burke's programs became PBS affiliates after its launch in October 1970, including Pittsburgh's WQED, which itself became a PBS flagship station, producing shows such as Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and National Geographic specials. It is therefore understandable how the explanation of the probe search title change was simplified to state that PBS already carried a show called Probe. Mystery solved. Again, the full story of Dr. Albert E. Burke on the upcoming Supplemental Podcast. As mentioned earlier, Search aired on Wednesday nights against Julie Andrews Hour on ABC and CBS's hit, Canon. Promising a contentious 10 o'clock hour. Search's premiere episode ranked 39th for the week out of 65 programs, only slightly behind Julie Andrews. Not terrible, in fact, placing ahead of new shows MASH and The Waltons. Unfortunately, ratings declined from there. 
After six aired episodes, Hugh O'Brien started to leak to the press that changes in production and storylines would be coming down the pike for the show, and that episode seven, The Bullet, was the best one yet and would begin a new look and direction for the series. Even though the ratings didn't see an improvement, NBC picked up the show for the remainder of the season, but there was even more going on behind the scenes. For over 25 years, it was a mystery why Leslie Stevens left the show around the middle of the season and Anthony Spinner took over. But in 2000, Search superfan and Navy commander Adam Benson from the Probe Control message boards got in touch with Angel Tompkins, specifically asking about the circumstances of Stevens leaving. Tompkins revealed that Stevens was working to sell a unique Movie of the Week concept to CBS. Where a movie was proposed to air in five half-hour chapters, then the assembled cut of the film would be released overseas theatrically. NBC did not like the idea of their showrunner working on content for their competition. The network thus took this opportunity to express their criticism of the series' direction and had changes they wanted to implement. They wanted the show to move away from the tongue-in-cheek tone and have a harder edge and focus more on the individual agent, with less emphasis on the technology and scenes cutting away to probe control. In other words, a move away from the core concept of the show. A similar move had been successfully made by Desilu four years earlier on CBS's Mannix, when the massive high-tech Intertech agency, with their extensive computers and surveillance systems, were done away with at the beginning of Season 2, in favor of a more traditional private eye format. This escalated into a disagreement resulting in Stevens, as well as producer Bob Justman, leaving the show, turning over production duties to Anthony Spinner, who had previously overseen the show's writing as executive story consultant. Some press articles presented this as the show being in trouble and Tony Spinner being brought in to save it. Hmm, where have I heard this before? As Spinner told the press, A lot of it will still be there in order for us to convey that this indeed is an ultra-modern investigative and top-secret organization, but it will be de-emphasized. We don't want to eliminate things so much as we want to realign their importance. Hugh O'Brien agreed with the changes, as he remarked, We interrupted the flow of action by returning to the probe center too often. I felt it was too jumpy. So did the critics and NBC. Probe control footage will be cut in half. Thus, at NBC's direction, the dark, mission control-like probe control set was revamped into a brightly lit, more sparsely occupied set with white walls. The number of specialist monitoring agents was reduced to two, and the probe agents were to rely more on their own resourcefulness instead of the continual help from probe control. As far as why the radical visual change to the probe control set, Star Trek's Mike Okuda speculates it may have been a way to save production time. Lighting for the dark, moody set very likely took significantly longer to set up and light actors' faces than the flat, evenly lit set of the final eight episodes. The changes failed to make any improvements in the show's ratings, and in late February, the LA Times called Search one of the shows most likely to be canceled by NBC.
The series was allowed to continue airing all produced episodes, and following the final airing on April 11th, the show was canceled, although reruns continued to air through the end of August. Many feel that the show required audiences to accept a lot of technology concepts they either didn't understand or weren't ready for. Tony Franciosa himself later said of Search, I never quite understood that show. I signed for only a year and was to do eight shows. It was very strange. I felt that the overall premise just didn't work. Everyone went into it with the very best of intentions, but the execution was bad. As the programs turned out, I was not surprised, nor very disappointed, that they were not very popular. I thought they were pretty bad, to be perfectly honest. The show's reviews were somewhat mixed. Don Page of the LA Times called the show contrived, ludicrous, gimmicky, and dull. John J. O'Connor, writing in the New York Times, was less negative, saying credibility is more ignored than strained, and that for all the flash electronics, the plots are drably standard. The Chicago Tribune's Clarence Peterson noted the Wiseacre Dialogue. Space-age G-wizzery, interesting close-ups of blonde Angel Tompkins at the probe control board, and some very amusing shots of O'Brien seemingly talking to walls, tables, and potted palms. Search probably also suffered from NBC not knowing how to initially market the show, as it sort of got lost in Wednesday night's various network offerings. Still, I am impressed how NBC didn't shuffle the show around and consistently aired it on the same night and time slot throughout the season. Merchandising plans for Search were in the works, or at least in the conceptual stages, for toy scanners and earpiece radios, as well as a board game. At first thought, a series on at 10 p.m. 9 central aimed at adults doesn't seem like a great source for toys, but even Kojak had a toy line, so why not? The limited number of items that were released that tied into the show were a pair of novels, the first, the novelization of the pilot movie, and the second of the episode, Moonrock. A Viewmaster set was also released, featuring the episode, The Gold Machine. Some collectible items were sold by Gene Roddenberry's Lincoln Enterprises for a time. Lincoln Enterprises sold Star Trek merchandise such as jewelry, stickers, insignia patches, and prop replicas at a time before there was a proven wide demand for licensed sci-fi merchandise. Lincoln also offered merchandise for Kung Fu and Roddenberry Project's Genesis 2, Questor, Earth 2, and Spectre. Producer Bob Justman was the one who suggested to Major Roddenberry they carry search merchandise and the catalog added 35mm film clips, scripts, and postcards. Search was never rerun in the U.S. after the NBC summer repeats of 1973. It is true the show ran only 23 episodes, but other shows enjoyed reruns with only one season or less, distributed as part of a syndication package or re-edited as a series of TV movies as was done with The Amazing Spider-Man, Battlestar Galactica, Salvage One, and other shows. While the probe pilot movie enjoyed TV syndication airings in the U.S., for a still unknown reason, Warner Brothers classified the Search series as foreign syndication only, expressly preventing any reruns to air in the U.S. 
following the NBC summer repeats in 1973. Ironically, its overseas airings earned the series new fans in the form of American military personnel stationed overseas. The TV movie pilot Probe was eventually released on VHS in the 1980s from Unicorn Video. But for decades, the only way to see the Search series episodes in the U.S. was via videotape copies distributed among fans of the show. In 2011, Warner Archive released Probe to print-on-demand DVD. In 2014, the complete series of Search was finally released on DVD in the U.S. via their print-on-demand service. The video quality across all episodes is consistently excellent and a testament to Warner Bros. film storage practices, even as later TV shows of the 80s from other studios have missing or lost episodes. If you're at all a fan of 70s TV or any of the lead actors, I recommend picking it up. Search thus inhabits a very odd limbo I don't usually come across when researching television. Since it was never rerun domestically, a restriction evidently still in force, no MeTV, Antenna TV, or Comet TV airings, the show has very little public awareness, as the only people that remember the series are those that saw the original airings or happened to see it rerun overseas. It's also not on any streaming service, so it's not likely to gain any new fans, and the only way to watch it is a DVD set most people aren't likely to drop 40 bucks on, sight unseen. For years, fans of the show gathered on the Probe Control fan website, no longer online, but which is now migrated to Facebook, and it's linked in the show notes. Both the old website archives, as well as the Facebook group, have been invaluable in putting together this information. Although Search never got rerun in the U.S., we did get some interesting TV series that called back to concepts first presented by Leslie Stevens' show. The 1994 Fox series Fortune Hunter seemed to lift multiple plot devices directly from Search. The handsome series protagonist was one of several agents on worldwide missions for the Intercept Corporation, a high-tech global recovery organization that outfitted agents with camera contact lenses and two-way in-ear comms, while the agent's partner back at the command center could feed him any information desired via his internet-connected computers and databases. In his newspaper column, Buck Biggers rightly pointed out the Fox series was virtually a carbon copy of Search. Airing on Sunday nights immediately following football, Fortune Hunter was pulled off the air after five outings, with Fox not bothering to run the remaining eight episodes that had been produced. In the 2007 NBC series Chuck, the government's secret databases are downloaded directly into the brain of the series lead, a normal computer geek that worked at a Best Buy-type big-box store. This flipped the concept around, resulting in the normal citizen Chuck assisting agents on missions, retrieving the vital information they need from his brain in a manner similar to how probe control would assist probe agents. The secret government database in this series was called The Intersect, which seems to hark back to names used on both Fortune Hunter and Mannix. CBS's 2014 series Intelligence took the premise to its next logical conclusion, 
implanting CIA agent Gabriel Vaughn with a microchip connecting his brain wirelessly directly to the government's global information grid, thus eliminating the middleman. The exceptional CBS series Person of Interest brought the concept and implications of the surveillance state to terrifying new levels. In that 2011 series, an AI called The Machine put probe control to shame as it was able to compile information on citizens using mass surveillance data from internet, phone, and virtually any video camera in the world. As a result, it was able to predict not only major crimes and terrorist acts, but also identify danger on a smaller scale to individual citizens, assisting an unlikely pair of characters, Finch, the computer scientist inventor of the machine, and Reese, a former Green Beret CIA agent needing a new purpose in life. The dynamic between Finch and Reese as they carried out missions to save regular people was reminiscent of how probe control would remotely assist probe agents in the field. Along the way, complex questions of personal privacy and the ethics of mass surveillance are brought up, which harken back to the Outer Limits episode, OBIT. Search did seem to be ahead of its time with its technological concepts, many of which seemed more advanced than technology used by the landing parties on Star Trek. Agents with ear and dental implants, instant worldwide video communication, databases on every conceivable subject, ring cameras with the effective capabilities of a tricorder. Today, the idea of series protagonists wearing nearly invisible in-ear audio comms is now so ubiquitous on current TV, superhero, and those three- and four-letter law enforcement shows, it has even given rise to the trope of the obligatory earpiece touch, a visual cue that tells the viewer a character is in secret audio communication with a remote person. While real-world in-ear comms are not nearly as slick or advanced as what is presented in these shows, today's Bluetooth earbuds do allow you to have no-handed conversations just like Lockwood. Our smartphones allow you to look up information on any topic on the internet, a probe control library database in your pocket. And these devices give us an ever-present camera in our hand as well allowing us to live stream video to worldwide audiences in a way even Leslie Stevens didn't predict. The episodes may have been formulaic, but Search, complete with its retro-futuristic credit typeface and slick gadgetry, reflects a sort of dated, groovy futurism that's fun to watch. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm overdue for my check-in with Probe Control. Federal Agent Sam Casey is about to disappear. All right. Hang on. Something's moving. But only temporarily. Radiation. He's alive and invisible. Without that DNA stabilizer, you fade out permanently. This button, you press that, and you go invisible. Can I flicker on and off? Like a road blinker. Now the government is ready to put their invisible weapon to work. Dr. Hale's new fuel additives, so-called because it triples vehicular mileage. Your mission is to protect Dr. Hale and get this rig to Long Beach on time. Keep your hands on the sight, Buster. Anything you say, pal. Now you see him. Now you don't. What's wrong? Being invisible has its advantages, but will it be enough to stop a mad scientist's reign of terror? 
Tripolidine is chemically unstable. The slightest jar in that truck that Sam is driving, and he's going to be blown to smithereens. Sam's invisible powers won't save him this time. What's the problem, Lazy Rider? Buffalo, I got no brakes. I am coming down on a wing and a prayer. Fasten your seatbelts for high-speed thrills with Ben Murphy, Catherine Crawford, William Sylvester, and Jim Stafford. There's a new invisible man in town, and he's riding with death. Again, leaving early from his own show, in a series of events that call to mind those from a decade earlier, Stevens next worked with Dominic Frontier and search director Russ Mayberry on the 1974 TV movie, Ferdelance, a movie that could be described as Snakes on a Submarine. The title refers to the French name of a pit viper. This was Stevens' last collaboration with Frontier for TV or film, who went on to provide music for Vegas and Matt Houston. By 1975, Stevens began writing and producing episodes for the Harv Bennett, Stephen Bochco series, The Invisible Man. The short-lived 13-episode series starred David McCallum, and while it shared a title with the 1897 H.G. Wells novel, it seemed to have little to do with that story or any of the film adaptations that came before it. Series episodes were written by Stevens, who is credited with three, Celig Lester, who also served as story editor and had been a writer on The Outer Limits, James D. Perriott, known for Voyagers, Misfits of Science, and Forever Night. And one was written by WizKids, Phil DeGare. While the pilot movie was played straight and serious, even portraying the permanently invisible character as tragic, the series took on a lighter-hearted tone. This was because Stevens took over the series after the pilot had been made, and according to him, he inherited an unworkable concept not suited to the lead actor. It was like the fugitive. He was chased by everybody. It was an impossible concept to maintain. We found we didn't have a man of action to send out on missions. David wasn't equipped for it. He couldn't do the active things. So, Bennett and Stevens took cues from how dailies from series filming played as comical and shifted the tone of the production to be tongue-in-cheek and to even include invisibility-related sight gags. However, this is mentioned by many as the downfall of the show. McCallum himself would lament that he had signed on to do The Fugitive and ended up doing Topper. Some accounts also report that Stevens was frustrated by Universal's attempts to tinker with the show to model it after their hit The Six Million Dollar Man and that he was walking away from the show early. Either way, NBC canceled the show following the airing of the fifth episode, allowing all 13 ordered episodes to air. However, when their research showed the invisibility concept still had audience appeal, NBC requested the show be revamped for the 1976 fall season, and this assignment was given to Leslie Stevens, who says he was given some direction for the new series. We were commanded from on high not to come up with another violent show. It had to be accepted as escapist adventure by young people, an attempt to capture even the casual attention of adults. Stevens immediately went to work on this new version of the show that would be titled Gemini Man. 
this time around, the lead actor was Ben Murphy as a 70s denim-clad secret agent for Intersect. There's that word again, a high-tech government think tank. The invisibility plot element was switched around a bit. Now a DNA stabilizer, worn as a digital wristwatch, kept Murphy visible, while he could switch his visibility off for up to 15 minutes a day and revert to invisibility. This eschewed the need for the clumsy concept of over-the-head masks, gloves, and clothing being taken off to attain invisibility. The stabilizer even conveniently controlled his clothing, preventing any unnecessary thoughts of a naked, invisible man running around on screen during the family hour that evidently bothered Bible Belt viewers of the prior series. If Murphy's character remained invisible past the 15-minute time limit, the results would be fatal. Some of the same production team from The Invisible Man was kept, and Stephen D'Souza came on board as story editor and writer, who sheds a little light on the rushed production. It was the first time I had seen a network cancel a show and then want it back immediately. On The Gemini Man, they took the unfilmed Invisible Man scripts and filmed them. As story editor, I knew the scripts were recycled. They had crossed out the names on the Invisible Man script and put the Gemini Man names in the margins. For the third episode, they even reused one of James Perriott's scripts from The Bionic Woman, where the villains created a duplicate of Jamie Summers using plastic surgery. After the Gemini Man episode aired, angry viewers wrote the network, as recalled by D'Souza. You would not believe the amount of letters that came into NBC and Universal. Do you think we're idiots out here? Just because we watch science fiction, do you think we're morons? We won't watch The Gemini Man again because you're ripping off the bionic woman. Newspaper columnists wrote about how creatively bankrupt Hollywood minds are. Stevens himself commented on the two invisibility-themed series in Frank Garcia and Mark Phillips' fantastic book on science fiction television series. Universal assigned me to help Harv Bennett bail out a sinking ship, The Invisible Man. When it failed, the studio had felt David McCallum wasn't appealing enough to carry a series. They wanted the more dashing, brainless Ben Murphy. I came up with a new approach called The Gemini Man which put the hero in a little more jeopardy. I came up with the wrist gizmo and other futile stopgaps, but I knew from the outset that Invisibility was a creaky franchise. I argued that the disappearing act hands the hero a cowardly solution to his problems. It was like a squid hiding under a cloud of ink. The original H.G. Wells classic was great, but from topper on, Invisibility sucks. Yes, unfortunately, this series was even less successful than McCallum's Invisible Man, and it was pulled from the schedule after only five airings, leaving six episodes unaired. However, the series fared better overseas when it aired in its entirety in the UK, Belgium, the Netherlands, and France, and even generated some spin-off merchandise. Back in the U.S., two of the episodes were later edited into a TV movie called Riding with Death, which was syndicated and aired throughout the 80s. And yes, was lampooned by Mike and the Bots in 1997 on Mystery Science Theater 3000. There's such a thing as starring Ben Murphy. Isn't it more honest just to say that most of the time the camera's pointed at Ben Murphy? 
Uh-huh. Oh, Stephen Bochco, does this mean we have to see Dennis Franz's hairy butt cheeks? No. We now come to one of the most interesting and oft-overlooked contributions to Stephen's body of work and TV pop culture in general, that of Battlestar Galactica. There are those who believe that life here began out there, far across the universe, with tribes of humans who may have been the forefathers of the Egyptians or the Toltecs or the Mayans. Some believe that there may yet be brothers of man who even now fight to survive somewhere beyond the heavens. I probably don't have to go into great detail to describe Battlestar Galactica to listeners of this podcast. BG exploded onto our TV screens in the fall of 1978 on ABC. If by chance you're not familiar with the story, in another solar system set during what they called the seventh millennium of time, humans reside on 12 colony planets that correspond to the 12 signs of Western astrology on Earth the humans have been fighting a 1,000-year war against the robotic Cylons, who seek to exterminate all of humanity. A supposed peace accord was to be signed, but it was a deception on the part of the Cylons to conduct a sneak attack in an attempt to eliminate humanity, once and for all, resulting in the wholesale destruction of the 12 colonies and their spacecraft fighter-carrier battle stars, with the exception of the Galactica. A ragtag fleet of ships with survivors is assembled under the Galactica's protection, which flee the Cylon tyranny in search of the lost 13th tribe of mankind that long ago took residence on a planet known as Earth. The $3 million TV movie, the actual budget of which is a point of some debate, Saga of a Star World, aired in an incredible three-hour broadcast, starting at 8, 7 central, which was interrupted at around 10.30 Eastern Time for over an hour by news coverage of the Camp David peace accords between Israel and Egypt. After the coverage, ABC resumed the movie from the point where it was interrupted, which was far too late for 10-year-old me on what was a school night, and I had to catch the end of what happened on a future airing. Battlestar Galactica was produced by Universal Television and Glenn A. Larson Productions, and Larson is credited with BG's creation and with the writing of Saga of a Star World and 10 additional episodes. Donald P. Belisario was a supervising producer on the series episodes and is credited with writing on 11. Leslie Stevens, who had previously worked with Larson on The Virginian and McLeod, worked as a supervising producer on Saga of a Star World. Stevens brought on board Saga director Richard Kala, who he had met in 1951 when he performed in Stevens' play, Bullfight. BG director Alan Levi became friends with Stevens during The Invisible Man, as he directed half the episodes of that series. While originally designed to be a seven-hour miniseries of three TV movies, after viewing Saga, 
ABC decided they wanted a weekly series, and the show scrambled into production, but was faced with a number of challenges, which it had from the very beginning. For one, BG was an extremely expensive and impressive production for television. The Galactica Bridge was constructed at an estimated cost of $850,000. The computer hardware firm Tektronics provided $3 million worth of high-tech computer hardware to dress up the set. Video monitors totaling $35,000 were used. The six-foot-long model of the Galactica, which weighed 60 pounds, cost $50,000. But Larson grossly underestimated the cost of bringing Saga to the screen, telling ABC he could do it for $1.8 million and committing Universal Television to producing it. When director Richard Kala attempted to hammer out the actual budget, this cost was estimated to be $9 million, an equivalent to some $37.5 million today. To make up the difference, the decision was made to do a later theatrical release the following summer, incredibly getting domestic audiences to pay at the theater for what they had already seen at home. Leslie Stevens commented on this theatrical release. From the very beginning, we smelled that Battlestar Galactica could be a fine shot at a corner of the Star Wars market. And we were right. In theatrical release, Galactica beat out Greece and Jaws 2 in Japan and Canada, and it has been shown theatrically in this country, the United States, in a few test locations, after being shown on TV, and it did very good business. Saga director Kala also felt the script to have comic book-style characterizations, which he expressed to Stevens as supervising producer, but he felt his issue with the story was never addressed. Kala also had creative differences with Larson, which came to a head when Larson asked him to leave four days prior to scheduled shooting completion on Saga. Alan J. Levi was then brought on to complete the telefilm Uncredited, which turned out to need rewrites and reshoots, which meant only about half the needed filming had actually been completed when Kala left. Glenn Larson hired virtually the entire effects team from Star Wars to work on the three-hour premiere, including concept artist Ralph McQuarrie, visual effects supervisor John Dykstra, effects illustrator and designer Joe Johnston, miniature and optical effects specialist Richard Edlund, and effects cameraman Dennis Murin, to name a few. Over 300 separate effect sequences were created, which outnumbered Star Wars by 15%. However, George Lucas took legal action against the show, feeling much of it was a copy of Star Wars, which started an involved legal battle and multiple countersuits between Universal and Fox Lucasfilm. Universal had famously been presented with the opportunity to produce Lucas's Star Wars circa 1974, as they had done with his hit American Graffiti, but turned it down. Lucas also threatened a lawsuit against Dykstra's new Apogee effects company, claiming he took old equipment from Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic. As a result, Apogee turned this equipment back over to ILM. Lucas also ended up hiring back most of the effects team to work on The Empire Strikes Back.
New effects work began to be done in-house at Universal, but previously shot spaceship and battle effect shots for Saga were noticeably reused on all remaining episodes. At breakneck speed, episodes were produced with scripts often delivered to the actors moments before filming scenes, and in some instances they read lines from cue cards. Episode stories were also often imitations of classic films, such as Shane, The Dirty Dozen, and The Towering Inferno. Though Battlestar Galactica's creation is attributed to Glenn Larson, in the last couple decades, Leslie Stevens is suspected to have been far more influential in its creation and development than was previously thought. Glenn Larson claimed to have a story concept for what he called Adam's Ark in the late 60s that featured mankind fleeing a doomed Earth on pyramid arcs. The story is said to contain themes similar to what is presented in Eric Von Daniken's 1968 book, Chariots of the Gods, which became a cultural phenomenon. The story supposedly sat undeveloped for nearly a decade. When George Lucas was shopping his script for Star Wars to various studios, including Universal, some accounts say Larson got a hold of a copy of this 12-page story treatment which spurred his interest in again trying to sell Adam's Ark to a studio. When Star Wars released in the summer of 1977 to phenomenal success, every studio was suddenly clamoring to make their own sci-fi project, and the concept was now an easy sell. Adam's Ark evolved into Star World. Larson teamed with Leslie Stevens, who had experience in producing science fiction TV, and the story was developed into a TV miniseries concept for Universal and ABC. The earliest reference I could find to Adam's Ark was an October 1978 article in Science Fantasy Film Classics magazine, where Glenn Larson is quoted. Adam's Ark was sort of about the origins of mankind in the universe taking some of the biblical stories and moving them off into space, as if by the time we get them to Earth, they're really not about things that happened here, but things that might have happened someplace else in space. It was influenced by Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods and some of those things. Adam's Ark helped bring a focus into what my concept had been. Ultimately, Battlestar Galactica is my original idea, refined down to where I have now fixed on what my point of view is on how all humans throughout the galaxy probably evolved from some mother colony. Also in that same magazine, DC Fontana wrote in her article, The Creator of Battlestar Galactica, that Leslie Stevens wrote the second of the original intended three TV movies, which was eventually produced as the two-part episode, Gun on Ice Planet Zero. Many early articles on BG thus credit Stevens, at least in part, for the writing of Ice Planet, and some books still list him as an uncredited writer. Stevens was at least a contributing writer of this two-parter, which has a long and murky production history involving at least 18 script revisions. We also know Stevens wrote a script for a never-produced episode entitled The Beta Pirates. Fast forward to the year 2000. In an interview with Susan J. Paxton for the website BattlestarFanClub.com, Director Alan Levi volunteered this tidbit regarding the original Battlestar Galactica story with no prompting. 
Well, Leslie Stevens wrote the original script. Leslie was one of my best friends. I do know that Leslie had told me at one time, way before he ever got into the script, that he had this great idea for a script that he was going to take to Glenn Larson and talk about. Now, whether in a court of law that would mean that Leslie came up with it and took it to Glenn and Glenn said, fine, we're going to co-do it, or not, I can't tell you. I wasn't there. However, he seemed to backtrack on this statement in a 2009 interview for Galactica.tv, saying, Um, no, he was involved with it. I can't say it was his idea. No, I don't think so. There were rumors flying around at that time that Glenn wanted Leslie to be involved with him on it. From what I understood anyway, Glenn developed it. He somehow had gotten a hold of, now this was all rumor at the time, the Star Wars script that Universal had turned down before Lucas took it over to 20th Century Fox. Supposedly, that script gave Glenn the idea to do a television version. People were saying rip-off. I will say version. I think Glenn brought Leslie in on it because Leslie was a science aficionado, especially in science fiction. Leslie had written books on all kinds of intergalactic and interstellar relationships and theories, so he was perfect to come in with Glenn on it. Then in the book, So Say We All, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of Battlestar Galactica, published in 2017, but quote date unknown, Levi said, Glenn's main force through all of that was he wanted to beat Star Wars to the theaters because he had read the Star Wars script. When Universal turned it down, after George Lucas made American Graffiti for the studio, he and Leslie Stevens got together and formulated Galactica. That's how he got the idea of making it, and he was determined to get it on before Star Wars came out. One thing about Glenn is that Glenn was always the star. There was a little bit of tension between the two of them because Leslie always felt that he had more of a contribution toward the original Galactica being done than what he had been given credit for. He didn't get co-credit on much of what he wrote. While several series experts maintain the original story was an equal blending of concepts from both Stevens and Larson, and it is clear many of the plot points, story elements, and names seem to originate from Larson's Mormon religion. The full truth of how much Battlestar Galactica was created by Leslie Stevens may never be known. But it is clear he likely had more to do with the show's creation and early development than he was ever credited for. BG seemed more than just a TV show, as it became part of pop culture. Taking a cue from Lucas famously making his money on the first Star Wars via merchandising, Universal licensed a slew of merchandise for BG at a level likely unprecedented for a TV show. There were model kits from Ravel, trading cards, lunch boxes, handheld electronic games, Halloween costumes, clothing, tie-in novels and comics, an entire Mattel toy line, just to name a few. The $1 million Battle of Galactica was also a featured attraction at the Universal Studios Tour for an incredible 13 years. <laughs>
Lasers ready. The Battle of Galactica has begun. Where are the humans? They are on the Universal Studios tour at the collapsing bridge and suspect nothing. We will capture them. In the doomed glacier expedition. We will torture them. At the shark. We will annihilate them. They are here. The Battle of Galactica has begun. However, two tragic events are forever tied to the show. On New Year's Eve 1978, a four-year-old boy in Atlanta choked to death on a one-and-a-quarter-inch projectile missile from a Mattel Colonial Viper toy. It only took 10 days for Mattel to issue a recall for the toy, which resulted in Kenner redesigning their Boba Fett figure from the Star Wars toy line. The following August, a 15-year-old boy, distraught over the cancellation of the show, jumped to his death from a bridge in St. Paul, Minnesota. The boy was obsessed with BG and had a room full of licensed merchandise and recorded all the episodes on audio tape. Like many others, he wrote to ABC pleading for a reversal of their cancellation. Following the final ABC rerun on August 5th, He rode out his will and rode off on his motorbike to the Smith Avenue Bridge. Police on the scene confirmed Battlestar Galactica was a topic of conversation with the boy before he finally jumped. BG was briefly resurrected in January of 1980 as Galactica 1980, but the quality of writing and production didn't approach the original. Any issues the original series had were dwarfed by the problematic production of Galactica 1980. One problem was that all the original, fantastic BG sets had already been struck, destroyed by the studio. Thus, only a couple of cheap soundstage sets were put together for Galactica scenes, while most of the action took place on Earth. Most of the actors didn't return, so new characters were created. Placed in an early Sunday evening time slot, producers had continual issues with the network censors and had to include educational content in each episode. Thus, the narrative was awkwardly halted while a character explained the combustion engine, conducted a history lesson on World War II, or on how Earth's weather system worked. The entire cast and crew knew they were on a sinking ship and the full story on this production would fill its own podcast, and will at some point. ABC pulled the plug on 1980 prior to the final 10th episode being aired, which actually turned out to be the best of that series, an exploration of what happened to Lieutenant Starbuck. In the middle of filming an 11th episode, work was stopped and the production disbanded. However, Leslie Stevens was not involved with Galactica 1980, as he was busy on yet another project. With BG in production, Larson and Stevens began developing Buck Rogers for Universal. The character of Buck Rogers was a creation of Philip Francis Nolan and first appeared in 1928 in Amazing Stories magazine, which Stevens used to read as a boy. It was adapted into a comic strip the following year, and a CBS radio show in 1932 introduced radio listeners to the science fiction adventure. An eight-minute promotional film short to promote the comic strip 
was shown at the 1933 World's Fair in Chicago. This short was then used to promote Buck Rogers toys sold in department stores. The character appeared in comic books throughout the 1930s. Universal Pictures came along with a 12-part serial in 1939 featuring Buster Crab, which gained new life in 1953 when edited down to a feature film, then edited again into a television movie in 1965 titled Destination Saturn. There was also a 1950 television series on ABC, which first ran on Saturday nights and lasted less than a year. There is conflicting and incomplete information on this series. We do know it was performed live, and only one episode survives to this day via kinescope, which can be viewed on YouTube. Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Following the massive success of Star Wars, released the summer of 1977, and by Close Encounters of the Third Kind in December, when January rolled around, studios began vigorously announcing their sci-fi-related properties in development, which for television included sci-fi comedy Quark, the miniseries The Martian Chronicles, the animated Flash Gordon, the Bionic Woman receiving visitors from space on her series, as well as Universal announcing both Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers in development for ABC and NBC, respectively. Interest in Buck Rogers in general began to rise that year as pizza parlors and TV stations showed the Buck Rogers serials. The collected newspaper comic strip was released in paperback book form, and articles revolving around the casting of star Gil Gerard were published. Initially seeking to resurrect their Buck Rogers property as a series of TV movies, as they were preparing to do over at ABC with BG, after months of rising production costs to the final reported tune of $3.5 million, by December 1978, Universal decided to release the initial movie theatrically to generate box office revenue, with the potential of its sale to NBC as a series dependent on its theatrical success. In March 1979, Buck Rogers in the 25th century hit theaters in the U.S. and Canada, earning some $21 million. Even though the film impressed neither Gene Siskel or Roger Ebert from sneak previews, saying that the dogfights in space scenes were direct ripoffs from Star Wars. The film carried a PG rating for its use of mild profanity, suggestive dialogue, and James Bond inspired extended opening credit sequence, which featured what the viewer is to assume is the main character having a 500-year-long sensual dream of actresses Erin Gray and Pamela Hensley posing for the camera and rolling around on a giant, underlit physical title of the words, Buck Rogers. An eye-popping experience for 11-year-old boys in the audience attending the film on a Saturday matinee with their father. The film was an update on the original Buck Rogers story. NASA astronaut Captain William Buck Rogers aboard exploration vessel Ranger 3 was frozen in space by temperatures beyond imagination. Blown out of its trajectory, the ship would return to the vicinity of Earth 
500 years later, in the late 25th century. Traditional characters Wilma Deering, Dr. Hewer, Killer Kane, and Ardala all appear, and even the character of Tiger Man is a callback to the 1934 short film which featured the Tiger Men of Mars. This time there was no question as to the pedigree of the story. The opening credits clearly stated, written by Glenn A. Larson and Leslie Stevens. Stevens was also credited as supervising producer of the film. Stevens acknowledged the challenge of updating the concept, yet maintaining its original spirit. With Buck, you have to get going from the old comic strip and serials and somehow wind up with plausibility. I distinctly remember carrying a Buck Rogers ray gun when I was about four and going zap at things and hearing the gun click like a cricket. That was a big deal back then, but now we're faced with the primitive look of the original in sophisticated times. We don't want our Buck Rogers to be just a cartoon. We wanted to update it without going so far as to destroy the soul of it. Behind the scenes, Buck Rogers recycled several props, sound and visual effects, costumes, and concepts from Battlestar Galactica. Viewers might have noted the control sticks in the Terran Starfighters were the same as those used on BG's Colonial Vipers. The Starfighters themselves were the original Viper design from artist Ralph McQuarrie, which went unused for BG and the Landram vehicle was redressed and reused. NBC indeed picked up the series for the fall of 1979. The theatrical film was slightly edited, including the removal of that softcore opening credit sequence, and a new ending was shot, setting up Buck for weekly adventures for the Earth Defense Directorate. The first season was generally well-received by viewers and struck a balance between space adventure and the occasional serious threat to humanity versus not taking itself too seriously. A second season saw the series have a bit of direction change with a new set of producers. The format changed from defending Earth to the main characters now on board a starship, seeking out lost tribes of humanity. This time, the series didn't perform as well, and NBC canceled the show after half a season. But Leslie Stevens had already moved on to his next project, attempting an ambitious return to the world of stage. Going into business with old friend Dominic Frontier and his new wife Georgia, owner of the L.A. Rams football team, they formed Empress Productions, with Stevens being a lover of acronyms, stood for Enterprises in Media Productions, Recordings, Entertainment, Stage, and Screen. The new endeavor was launched in 1980 at a fancy press conference at Beverly Hills Bistro Restaurant. Stevens was again excited to be involved in a production company led by creatives, this time for the stage, saying, Empress is really my old Daystar company reborn but with everything Daystar didn't have. It's got all the Daystar principles, and a lot of the Daystar people are already back with me. For the immediate future, however, we're doing certain projects that are strategic moves in order to put the industry on notice that we're a really formidable company which has money to spend, but which is being guided by creators who are not answerable to business affairs. 
Stephen's plan was to work outside the Broadway system and open shows at Washington, D.C.'s Kennedy Center as ground zero for a nationwide tour. The venture made a splash in the press, and Stevens and current wife Yolanda were featured in a five-page article in the Philadelphia Inquirer's style section. Stevens' new play, A Partridge in a Pear Tree, with actor James Mason, went into production, and plans were in the works for The Sultan of Swat, a musical salute to baseball's Babe Ruth, and the first of an intended trilogy. Unfortunately, Partridge fared poorly in the reviews and closed in February after 40 performances. Stevens' embarrassment at the play's failure was compounded when James Mason quipped on national television, Let's face it, all of the great playwrights are now dead. However, that paled in comparison to what was about to happen, which would completely derail Empress Productions. An NFL antitrust suit against the L.A. Rams triggered an investigation into a massive mob-connected Super Bowl ticket scalping operation. This led to an undercover FBI sting operation involving an informant posing as a hitman that carried out a supposed hit on the primary witness in the case. The FBI conscripted makeup artists from Universal Studios to create a fake bullet wound in the witness's head to convince the target of the investigation that the hit had been carried out. However, the witness also named Dominic Frontier as the source of tickets to 1980s Super Bowl that were scalped and for which Frontier allegedly failed to report income. In 1986, Frontier was indicted on tax fraud, sentenced to a year in prison along with a $15,000 fine. The Emmy and Golden Globe winning composer who had headed music departments at both Fox and Paramount was assigned duties for the prison disposal plant and general maintenance crew. Following his release, wife Georgia Frontier filed for divorce. While some believe he acted the patsy, refusing to testify against his wife and thus taking the fall for a years-long ticket-scalping operation involving his wife and the mob, the conviction and prison sentence effectively ended his Hollywood career, only managing to obtain a single credit post-prison for the 1994 film Color of Night. The scandal and years-long court case also effectively ended Empress Productions. Frontier remarried and moved to New Mexico and quietly resumed writing music for off-Broadway stage plays. Dominic Frontier died in 2017 at age 86. Following the Empress Productions debacle, Stevens returned to writing for Hollywood, but nothing was ever the same. At age 57, he announced he was no longer interested in network television and would focus only on theatrical films. One script he wrote called Brigade of Terror was an adaptation of a novel and intended film for Chuck Norris, but it never went into production. He was one of seven eventual screenwriters to take on Columbia Pictures' problematic Sheena, which eventually went to screen in the summer of 1984, but most of his story wasn't used. Initially, Stevens was given free reign by Columbia to go in a fantasy sci-fi direction with Sheena. 
When they offered it to me, I asked if I could do some things with it that would take it up a notch in my view of how it ought to be written. I wanted to shift it from being just another jungle picture into realms of high imagination and connect it on to the chariots of the gods concept. I became very high on the possibility that Sheena could do things that would be very unexpected and really knock the audience on its ear. But producer Paul Arato later said of Steven's script, It was an interesting job, but it didn't meet with studio enthusiasm. Columbia didn't want to deal with Sheena as a magical phenomenon. The execs felt the basic material was already so fantastic that the best way to play it was naturalistic. But they believed in the property enough to commission yet another script and start all over again. Stevens was also one of many that worked on Canon Films' ill-fated attempt to bring Spider-Man to the big screen. Canon, a prolific production company primarily known for B-grade action and horror films, had obtained the film rights for the Marvel property after a failed attempt by Orion Pictures to produce a Spider-Man film. Not understanding the character, Israeli cousins Menahem Golan and Yoram Globus, who ran Canon, initially envisioned the movie as a horror film rather than a traditional superhero story. Toby Hooper was attached to direct the film, and Leslie Stevens was assigned to write the script. Stevens' script featured Peter Parker as an ID badge photographer who fell victim to a mad scientist's experiment, which transforms him into a kind of human tarantula. Stan Lee and Marvel didn't like that concept at all, and this storyline, as well as Toby Hooper, were dropped in favor of Joseph Zito and other writers brought in. Cannon began to advertise full-page ads in trade magazines, promising the traditional version of the hero coming soon to the big screen. I well remember working at the movie theater and the excitement of seeing one of these ads. A teaser trailer was even produced. Within this unsuspecting city, history's greatest experiment creates tomorrow's greatest superhero, Spider-Man the Movie. A live-action spectacular directed by Joe Zito, based on the characters created by Stan Lee. But the film was not to be, the circumstances of which is an entire story unto itself. But Stevens wrote a film for canon that did get released. His next project was Three Kinds of Heat, which he wrote and directed as a vehicle for his current wife, Chinese actress Shakti Chen. Scramble code Niner at a JFK airport. It looks like an internal faction of Black Lion tried to take out one of their own. When a global crime syndicate explodes into war, no one is safe, and only Interpol's best agent can stop them. Robert Ginty is Elliot Cromwell, Consular Service. A New York cop and an elite Hong Kong detective join Elliot Cromwell. I'll tell you all about it later. Come on. In pursuit of the Black Lion syndicate. from home, Looking for Harry Pym. Harry Pym. And together, they uncover more than they bargained for. How many divisions does Black Lion have? Hundreds. They gotta be the fastest going conglomerate in the big board. 
I've managed to get Elliot Cromwell relieved of duty. Well, I want to see his corpse, or I'm going to see yours. Three tough agents make three kinds of heat. For international crime, Robert Ginty. Three kinds of heat. With Canon Films distributing the movie, it seemed to be booked mainly at drive-ins and second-run theaters. Reviews were harsh. David Inman said the two lead women couldn't act their way out of aluminum foil. Tony Brown called it a racist, sexist bit of doggerel that manages to be offensive to women, blacks, and especially Asians. The film faded from theaters but seemed to be a hit on cable channel Showtime for two and a half years before finally making it to VHS in 1992. His final two films in the 90s were clearly simply for hire projects, causing audiences to wonder if the name they saw on the screen was indeed the same visionary responsible for creating The Outer Limits. 1991's Return to the Blue Lagoon saw the next generation of semi-nude teenagers stranded on the same lagooned desert island as the first film. 1994's Gordy is likely the biggest head-scratcher in his entire career. However, Stevens had proven his ability to write light-hearted comedy earlier in his stage play years. He both produced and wrote the screenplay for this live-action family comedy featuring the talking piglet named Gordy searching for his missing family. He's the most successful executive in America. Respected, admired, revered. Your empire, sir. The name is Gordon. A nation embraces him. They perform in hero pig fan clubs. We'll sign Gordy to a lifetime contract. And greedy executives plot to destroy him. Kidnap Gordy. Never underestimate the power of the pig. Gordy starts Friday, May 12th at a theater near you. The movie was notable for being the first family film distributed by Miramax Pictures following its acquisition by Disney. Gordy had a very limited theatrical release, but was popular on home video, benefiting from the interest in the similar film Babe then in theaters. Although not publicly known, by the time of Gordy, the 70-year-old Stevens was not in the best of health. Undoubtedly apprehending his own mortality, he began to work on leaving behind a legacy. In 1991, he established the Leslie Stevens Fellowship for Television Writing, where aspiring writers could submit written material in hopes of not only a money prize, but also mentorship and access to Stevens' connections. The hope was to award four fellowships per year, paying forward the guidance he himself had received from Orson Welles some 50 years earlier. The first recipient of the fellowship was 25-year-old Robin Riordan from Van Nuys. Stevens' connections at Columbia got her writing accepted for episodes of the short-lived ABC sitcom Sibs. And the following year, she found herself a staff writer and story editor on The Wonder Years as one of the guiding forces of season six of that series. She later worked as a writer on the animated series Kim Possible and created Mary-Kate and Ashley in action. She also paid it forward, creating a screenwriter's workshop 
for the Women in Film nonprofit. Whatever additional contributions Robin Riordan would have made to our entertainment history were cut short when she unexpectedly died in 2003 at age 38. Stevens was involved with the AFI, or American Film Institute, teaching screenwriting to a new generation of writers, such as Hamlet Sarkisian. Having fled to the U.S. from Armenia in 1989 to escape the KGB, Sarkisian's knowledge of the West came from film history. My first impression of American film came from the Kirk Douglas boxing movie, Champion. Also his movie about Hollywood, The Bad and the Beautiful. And we always got the new Polish and French films from people like Truffaut, Romer, Godard. The people who brought in these movies were huge film lovers and provided us with many obscure, wonderful movies. Like Francis Coppola's The Conversation, which probably has been seen by more Russians than Americans. With limited English, Sarkisian enrolled in AFI classes. Foremost among his teachers was Leslie Stevens. His 2000 crime drama, Camera Obscura, which he wrote and directed, was popular on the film festival circuit. Others benefited from Stevens' generosity, such as Jill Gurr, who was working in Hollywood as a script supervisor when, following the L.A. riots in 1992, she felt moved to teach screenwriting workshops to groups of incarcerated youth. Jill Gurr provided this account for Forgotten TV. The youth in both of my classes went through amazing transformations. They learned how to read and write, wanted to return to school and apply to college, and one gang leader even had gang tattoos removed. In 1996, I shared my stories with another screenwriter named Erica Clark, whom I met. She called the next week to tell me that her professor, Leslie Stevens at the AFI, wanted to give me $5,000 to start a nonprofit organization. I had no idea about what a nonprofit was, but when I found out and realized that it was an exciting opportunity to help many more youth through writing, I gladly took Leslie up on his offer. I never got the chance to meet him in person. We chatted briefly on the phone when I received his $5,000 check so I could thank him and express how meaningful his donation was. With that donation, Gurr founded the nonprofit that became known as Create Now, which has since held workshops for some 50,000 youth in the Los Angeles area facing abuse, neglect, abandonment, incarceration, homelessness, and similar challenges, introducing them to the arts, which she says has left a legacy. None of this would have been possible without Leslie Stevens. He was a visionary who has made a huge impact on youth now and all our future generations through his donation. His legacy has been passed forward to help kids and the artists who are teaching them to create now. The impact of Leslie Stevens thus reaches farther than just his film and TV work. But before we close out our story, the 1990s were also about to give us the return of a Stevens classic. Fan interest in The Outer Limits had never really waned. 
The 1970s saw the phenomenon of fanzines, or fan-produced magazines, amateur newsletters that published content, such as fan fiction, instructions on how to correspond with TV networks and studios, and bulletins on the latest projects of actors and show creators. The king of fanzines in these years had to be Star Trek. But zines were published for Blake 7, Man from Uncle, Space 1999, and yes, The Outer Limits. The show itself saw TV syndication throughout the 1970s, but finding it on your local station was hit or miss, and scheduling was at the whim of station programmers. The 1980s saw the rise of cable TV, and Superstation WOR began regularly airing the show on the weekends to a nationwide audience, some who had never seen it before. The idea of reviving Stevens' crown jewel began to be tossed around. In 1983, MGM, which had acquired United Artists, approached him about doing a TOL film, for which Stevens pitched a story concept, which the studio expressed interest in, but done as a TV movie of the week format. However, Stevens had an elaborate theatrical concept for an Outer Limits film that harkened back to the William Castle-style audience participation gimmicks circa 1960, and tried to get Paramount to develop this. But when Twilight Zone the movie opened that summer to lukewarm box office returns, Paramount was no longer interested. Then, when both Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Twilight Zone were being prepared for mid-80s television revivals, as well as NBC adding anthology Amazing Stories to its lineup, MGM again prodded Stevens to participate in a TV revival for TOL for none other than ABC. And work began on selecting classic TOL episodes for modern remakes. Plans for an Outer Limits revival at ABC went out the window when Capital Cities acquired ABC in early 1985 and refocused the network schedule on family-friendly sitcoms, the programming strategy that also doomed Street Hawk, as considered in a recent podcast. Still, interest in TOL continued via late 80s VHS and Laserdisc releases. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. Now you can own the original, uncut, award-winning Outer Limits TV episodes for just $4.95 for your introductory video cassette from the CBS Video Library. Here's one of the crown jewels from the golden age of television. A unique blend of suspense, mystery, and drama as only The Outer Limits could deliver it. Then, in 1991, the first of many TOL marathons began airing on cable station TNT. Sit down. You're not going anywhere. This is Monster Vision, and TNT belongs to us now. And we're showing more of the Outer Limits than any Earthling has ever seen in a single contiguous lump of cosmic discombobulation. The Outer Limits, all night, tonight, starting now. The soundtrack to the classic series, featuring Dominic Frontier's compositions, was released on CD format in 1993 to the delight of collectors. Interest in genre television continued to increase with multiple Star Trek series, The X-Files, and horror anthology Tales from the Crypt, doing well on HBO, freed from the requirements of broadcast standards and practices. 
First-run syndication had also exploded in popularity with Star Trek The Next Generation, Highlander, and Tales from the Dark Side. Thus, in the summer of 1994, MGM announced the return of The Outer Limits as a new series using a unique hybrid distribution model. The show would premiere on pay cable channel Showtime, then subsequently be sold into first-run broadcast syndication. Being on a premium cable channel allowed episodes to have mature themes and contain profanity and nudity, and they did. Although they aired without commercial breaks on Showtime, episodes were structured to be easily edited for standard TV broadcasts. The New Outer Limits premiered in March of 1995 with George R.R. R. Martin's story, The Sand Kings, featuring Lloyd, Bo, and Dylan Bridges. Stepping away from the original bear concept, episodes ran with the theme of science gone wrong. Although Leslie Stevens received a consulting producer credit and Joe Stefano an executive consultant credit, neither may have had any real creative control over the series, although some sources state Stevens served as an uncredited story editor. This new version of The Outer Limits ran for seven seasons and 152 episodes, many exploring some of the same themes as did the original classic series. Joe Stefano even revisited his original feasibility study story with a new version of the classic episode. But during The Outer Limits' fourth season, in April 1998, Leslie Stevens was rushed to UCLA Medical Center, where he died following an emergency angioplasty. The one-time playwright and protege of Orson Welles turned prolific TV and film creator had left us. He was 74. In March 2000, the Museum of Television and Radio's William S. Paley Television Festival paid tribute to Stevens and The Outer Limits. While Leslie Stevens wouldn't be there for this honor, on hand was the other driving force behind the creation of the series, Joseph Stefano, who took questions from the press and the audience. Since his time on The Outer Limits and having missed the opportunity to write other screenplays for Hitchcock, Stefano had returned to the world of Norman Bates with Psycho 4, The Beginning, in 1990. He also developed the DC property Swamp Thing into a series for USA Network. Two years later, The Outer Limits was released on DVD for the first time by MGM. Stefano himself later died in 2006 at age 84. For more on this master screenwriter, check out the brand new book, From the Inner Mind to The Outer Limits Scripts of Joseph Stefano, Volume 1 from Gauntlet Press. Produced with cooperation from the Stefano Estate, the volume features six classic and two unproduced scripts from TOL, with commentary, a treasure for any serious Outer Limits collector. Check the show notes for more information. In March 2015, a digitally restored version of Stevens' directorial debut film, Private Property, was screened at UCLA's Billy Wilder Theater with author David J. Shaw on hand to field audience questions. Thought to be lost for some 45 years, 
This was the first U.S. screening of the film since 1964. How did this come about? Although not widely known, the return of Leslie Stevens' 1960 classic noir film was a result of the work of Dory Page, who published a biography on Stevens last year. Originally researching him for an article for Film Facts magazine, Page started cold-calling multiple family members and associates of Stevens beginning around 2005. Her work evolved into a book focusing on his early life and the production of private property. But there had never been a home video release of the film, and she discovered that private property had not been seen domestically since screenings in the mid-1960s. Research into just what happened to any remaining film prints or elements revealed they had simply gone missing over time, even Stephen's personal copy of the film. She learned that Stan Colbert, Stephen's former agent and partner, had a VHS copy made at great expense from the UK Film Archive. Colbert suggested that he had reason to believe Stephen's original film master, was stored away at the UCLA Film and Television Archive. Originally declaring they didn't have and never had the film, Page's persistence that they conduct an exhaustive search for the film finally paid off when they discovered, to their surprise, they did, in fact, have possession of both the 35mm film print and negatives. A private screening was scheduled, and friend Susan Campo, author of her own biography on Warren Oates and local to the L.A. area, was sent to view the film, projected for the first time in some 45 years. The screening was also witnessed by some UCLA staffers who were amazed at the noir thriller once hailed by Variety as a possible forerunner of an American new wave film movement. A grant was obtained, and the film underwent a 4K restoration by film preservationist Scott McQueen. A public screening of the restored film was held March 15, 2015, at L.A.'s Billy Wilder Theater as part of UCLA's Festival of Preservation, and author David J. Shaw was on hand to answer audience and press questions. A Blu-ray release was prepared by Cinelicious Picks, which was released in October of 2016. Photographs provided by Dory Page that she had obtained from her decade of research were used on the packaging. For all her efforts resulting in the discovery and release of this film, Dory Page received no mention or credit, and the story remained untold until now. Why did Leslie Stevens not become more of a well-known name in film and TV? Unlike other TV producers that prominently featured their name in the title of their production companies, Stevens only briefly used Leslie Stevens Productions, and it was seen on only two things, Search, which was banned from ever having U.S. reruns, and his 1974 TV movie, Ferda Lance. He didn't personally introduce episodes of The Outer Limits, as Rod Serling did on The Twilight Zone and Night Gallery. Finding he didn't excel at being a Hollywood businessman, he left the business side of production to others and focused on creating. As we've seen, his two early films were lost for decades and were also fairly obscure cult films that didn't have mass-market appeal. 
His later TV creative work was overshadowed by others who made sure their names were more prominently featured in the credits. It is perhaps for these reasons Leslie Stevens never really became a household name on the level of other TV producers that are more well-known. During the production of these podcasts, it was announced that the Gene Roddenberry archives, key texts and documents from Roddenberry's life and career, as well as one-to-one scale digital versions of his famous starships, will be released to the public in the coming years. The archive will be curated by legendary Star Trek artists and authors Denise and Mike Okuda, as well as illustrator and set designer Darren Docterman and visual effects artist Doug Drexler all being long associated with the Star Trek franchise. This will be a multi-year effort to memorialize the entirety of Gene Roddenberry's life, legacy, and creative work for future generations on the blockchain for archival use. Thus far, only a few have gotten a peek at the samples of the archives of Leslie Stevens, and I am told the full inventory might be extensive. Papers, memos, manuscripts, correspondence, contracts, business records. He is said to have written nearly everything down in leather-bound journals. We're talking about a man who loved to keep records and had a giant custom coffee table book made, documenting the production of the first film he directed, Private Property. Perhaps one day, the Leslie Stevens archives will be released, giving us a fuller picture of this unique individual. Until then, we do have access to most of what he produced. His classic series, The Outer Limits, underwent new HD remasters, released to Blu-ray by Kino Lorber just three years ago. His 1960s films were restored and are available on both disc formats. Search now has a full DVD release, and even his later, less well-received action film, Three Kinds of Heat, is widely available on various streaming platforms. From playwright, to new age philosopher, to TV and film creator, with varying degrees of success, Leslie Stevens certainly left his mark on the world. To critics of his writing, he once told Time Magazine, There is nothing wrong with being a hack writer. I would point with pride to the inspired hacking of Shakespeare, Michelangelo. You can go through a big list. His son Steve put it this way, My father's greatest gift was his spoken word. When he hunkered down to tell a story to a small group, it was spellbinding. He had a gift. He was cursed. He was Leslie. Next time on Forgotten TV. It began with Westworld. Three, two, one. Activate now. A futuristic playground where people could act out their fantasies with robots so sophisticated it was impossible to tell them from humans. Suddenly, the robots changed, turned into the deadly servants of their creator, Simon Quaid, who took them beyond Westworld. I have an impregnable army of loyal and unquestioning troops. I've placed robots all over the world. He wants it all. He has one heck of a good chance of getting it with those robots. Delos, builders of Westworld, must stop Quaid. Assigned is security chief John Moore and special agent Pam Williams. Let's face it, John, it's your wits against Quaid's machines.
It's 1980s Beyond Westworld, coming in 30 days to Forgotten TV. If you haven't guessed by now, this is not a turn the microphone on and talk podcast. Three months of research went into this two-part show. Five books were purchased, multiple people were consulted, and over 60 vintage newspaper articles were clipped. This pair of shows presented the most accurate information and timeline surrounding the events of Incubus ever assembled, as well as multiple stories never before told about Leslie Stevens and his work. If you'd like to support the work I do, please seriously consider becoming a patron on Patreon or making a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. You can even set up a recurring donation via your bank's online bill pay, likely for free. Message me for details on where to send payments. Patrons gain access to the supplemental podcast feed for supporters, where next we will consider the story of Dr. Albert E. Burke and the original 1950 story by Graham Dorr called The Outer Limit that was the first to feature several story elements endlessly repeated in science fiction and which was featured as the first episode of the now nearly forgotten CBS sci-fi TV anthology Out There. Links for all of this can be found in the show notes. This episode was executive produced by Will Welton and Doc Pinko with producers Julio Capa, Rich Kunkel, Mark Hadley, K.L. Young, Ralph Caracillo, and Ron. And of course, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. The DVD used was provided by Greg Blanchard. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by NBC, ABC, Leslie Stevens Productions, Warner Brothers, Universal Television, Glenn Larson Productions, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show, film, or streaming service mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, I earn from qualifying purchases made. Search Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers, and other mentioned TV series and films and associated characters are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. This podcast is copyright 2021 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and online forums and articles. All reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented. However, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. The following probe agents contributed research to this podcast. Jim Alexander Christopher Metz Don Harden Acting Man John Commander Adam Benson, and Brian K.D. Special thanks extended to probe data and research analysts, John Strong, Angel Tompkins, Helen Burke Weber, Dory Page, Marilyn Stefano, Lee Goldberg, and Jill Gurr.
Water by DJ Answer is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. Solstice by Spectacles Wallet and Watch is used under license by Epidemic Sound. If you need music for your podcast or YouTube channel, please check out Epidemic Sound. Link in the show notes. I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making the audio clips possible. Old Time Radio Theme Players, The Bobby Wygant Archive, Rumble Graphics, The 1000 TV Shows from A to Z Lover is Here, The Rap Sheet, R.U., Lewish Waltz, Lee Goldberg, Cow Missing, Peter David, Moviecraft Inc., Fred Figarano, Molly Mania, Intermission Society, Canon Films, Lord.Redford, VHSHD.com, Hugo Faces, Robbie Riley Esquire, Whoopi Goldman, and J. People Mover. Sources of quotes and background information not given directly to Forgotten TV were obtained from the following websites and vintage magazine issues. The Gentleman's Blog to Midnight Cinema, Television Obscurities, TV Party, Den of Geek, The Mystery File Blog, the ANFSQ7 website, Friday at 8, 7 Central blog, The Burke Center, Mr. Breakfast, Welcome to Level blog, The Hollywood Reporter, Mercer Design, Battlestar Fan Club, Galactica.tv, Filmsuits.com, Starlog Issue 40, Future Magazine Issue 7, Fangoria Issues 9 and 10, and Variety and Time Magazines as well as the books, science fiction television series 1959 through 1989 by Mark Phillips and Frank Garcia. Leslie Stevens Goes to Hollywood, Daystar Productions, Kate Manx and the Making of Private Property by Dory Page. Leslie Stevens, The Unsung Hero of Battlestar Galactica, written by Justin Murphy. So Say We All, The Complete, Uncensored, Unauthorized Oral History of Battlestar Galactica by Mark A. Altman and Ed Gross. An Analytical Guide to Television's Battlestar Galactica by John Kenneth Muir. By Your Command, Volume 1, by Alan Stevens and Fiona Moore. The Vanishing Vision, The Inside Story of Public Television by James Day. And numerous vintage newspaper articles from newspapers.com, available on request. Links to all content and social media is found at Forgotten. TV. Thank you for listening. I am Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Lockwood, Lockwood, come in. Lockwood.